Welcome to Seven Streets. Last week, Seven Streets went to the Walker Art Gallery to see the new exhibition there, A Collector's Eye, and all very lovely it is too. But on the way through, we did what we always do, and we walked straight past the permanent collection. And that's a really shameful admission, because the Walker's known as the National Gallery of the North, and there's a heck of a lot of really good stuff in there that we just take for granted most of the time. So we thought, what better way to introduce ourselves to the delights that are always there than by asking one of the museum's curators to give us the very briefest of introductory tours. So this is it. This is the first Seven Streets audio guide, and it's the Seven Streets Take Seven guide to the Walker Art Gallery. Your host... Laura McCulloch um, and I'm curator of British art here at the Walker. What really attracted me to Liverpool in the first place is the Walker's amazing collection. How big is the permanent collection? Um, I think it's about 10 to 20,000. I know in the works on paper collection alone there's 8,000 pieces so that gives you a really good idea but unfortunately we've got limited space in the Walker so we can't get them all out on display so what we have to try and do is when we have exhibitions of our own collections or if something goes out on loan, it's a brilliant opportunity for us to get things out of store that people haven't seen before um, and get them on the walls. How do you make um, a permanent collection of an art gallery constantly relevant? I think it's about looking at what you've got in the permanent collection and drawing out special things that perhaps people haven't noticed before. Just recently, actually, we borrowed an amazing Stubbs painting and then that helped us collect or sort of highlight our collection of stubs and just we had a, a sort of small mini display and I actually got in some vets from Leehurst at the Liverpool um, University and came in and got their knowledge and it was great because they were coming in and being really enthusiastic and when I was giving tours I'd start off with about 10 people and then slowly people would be going through the galleries and stopping and coming to listen and really looking at the paintings again. Whilst you're talking about the, the, the struggle of keeping the uh, gallery relevant, the distant rumble of a, of, of a war you can hear in the background is the, the library next door yes, being yeah. um, reshaped around us and so as a result of that you've had to take down a lot of the big larger canvases that are adjacent to the library. Yes we have and particularly the older works that are on panel which is wood which makes them much more delicate because of the vibrations from the library. We've really had to plan that and we're working very carefully with the builders next door so they know to let us know about what work they're doing but the vibrations really are coming right through the wall and you can hear it but actually it's quite interesting that um, visitors can see that the gallery is sort of being moved around constantly in a state of flux yeah so what sort of percentage of the collection are is ever on the walls at any one time i would say probably about 20 percent maybe a little bit less um, and so how often will you refresh the uh, the hangings and bring out some of the uh, well what we sheets? tend to do is if something is going out on loan and that's something that's up on the walls we then go in the stores and find something that we want to bring out instead so that happens constantly we're often lending things at, no, at least more than 20 times a year we're finding things so that's one way that we constantly do it but in, a, in terms of actually redoing a whole room that tends to happen every 5 to 10 years so in March we're about to install a, a new permanent gallery which is British Art 1880 to 1950 and we're hoping that that's going to last for the sort of next to five to seven years and within that we will move some of the the works around um, so when things go on loan we'll change them but we're hoping to keep that 
because we think we've got the best of the best, the creme de the creme coming out. Especially in that in particular that era, in that room. OK, well, should we go and have a little uh, look around at some of you? You've picked about uh, half a dozen, seven of yeah, your... Yeah, what? seven of my absolute favourites. Great, let's go and have a look. OK, so we're now on the first floor. We've come through room eight uh, and into room five. On our left, we have a fine specimen in front of us. Yes, this is um, one of my new favourites, actually. It's by um, George Stubbs. We're in the 18th century room, the blue room. Now, we uh, in Liverpool, we have been known for uh, celebrating our own. And I think if asked to name a Liverpool artist, a lot of us would say Stubbs. But how important was he in the, uh, the greater scheme of things? really very important um the other thing that is really interesting about him is that he's very well known for being an animal painter but really he started out as being a portrait painter um, and he went to york hospital which was a teaching hospital and studied anatomy not to be a physician or a doctor but so that he could know human figures inside out is that why you can see the musculature of the of the horses it is. once he had decided that he knew anatomy very very well and he decided to want to do something different than portraiture he he set himself the task of creating an anatomy of the horse that he would publish in a book. So he went and one of his patrons let him hire a barn in the countryside and he went and bought horses from the knacker's yard. Obviously they were killed and he rigged up a special set of ropes so he could sort of pull them up and put them into standing position and then he drew them and he dissected them layer by layer and did the drawings and then these drawings were later published which is why with Molly Longlegs you can see all the muscles you can see all the veins that are sort of popping out and when he finally had finished his anatomy he had all his drawings ready he went down to London to find a publisher but at the same time, he was showing some of the richest men in England these drawings. These very rich men also loved gambling, horse racing and hunting. Um, they then commissioned him to paint their favourite horses. And Molly Longlegs was commissioned by Viscount Bolingbroke. And he was known uh, mainly for his gambling, but also because he divorced the first ever Lady Diana Spencer. This was one of his favourite horses. She won several races for him. Originally, she'd had a couple of foals, was out to pasture. If you were a female horse, really, you were just turned out and left quite wild, except for bearing foals. But they realised that she was actually a very, very fast horse, so they stopped her, put her into races. She won several. And because she was successful, she got given a name. And female horses, if they were just rearing foals, they didn't get names. So the fact that she has a name means that she was really important to him. So um, quite an expensive horse then. Yeah, very expensive horse, I think. And one of the things that people often say to me is, why has she got these little tiny dot, white dots on the back of her the flank? There. flank? Yeah. Um, and the reason is because they're saddles, where the saddles rubbed. She wasn't in any pain, but because of where the fur was being rubbed, the fur actually turned white and the pigment was left. Oh, right. And it's a little bit like having um, a fingerprint, because each horse if that happens to them it's completely unique and so the fact that he's put that in it's a portrait of her in so many levels right down to essentially the fingerprint, to the fingerprint. great okay let's uh, move on to okay. number two okay so we've now we've turned right we've walked into the green room room six the pre-raphaelite room and uh, immediately to our right just uh, beyond the bust um, we've got a small series of three paintings and it's the middle one we're looking at here. Yeah, no, this is a portrait of Millie Smith by Ford Maddox Brown. Um, I have to say this probably is my absolute favourite painting in the whole gallery 
part of the reason is that there's a little bit sad story behind it. Um, Ford Maddox Brown is very well known. He wasn't a member of the official Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, but he was a follower of the Brotherhood and best friends with Rossetti. But funnily enough, he was English, but he was brought up in Calais and in Belgium. He did all his art training in Belgium. Um, and so didn't settle in England until he was about 25. And the main reason that he came to settle in England is because his wife died of tuberculosis. The reason why Millie Smith is so poignant is because after the death of his wife, um, he was left with his three-year-old daughter, Lucy. I think he was just reeling from that and knew that he had this little girl. But he decided to take Lucy on holiday down to the south of England just for a few weeks, just the two of them, when he got back to England. And Millie Smith was actually Lucy's playmate whilst they were on holiday. Um, she was the landlord's daughter from the B&B that they were staying at. It's been painted in 1846, so it's two years before the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood actually came into being. As well as grieving, he was also trying out a new form of art. He'd had very, very academic training with very strict rules on how you should paint, that in any painting you should have two-thirds dark to one-third light. You should have almost like a false light, a bit like theatrical lighting with a spotlight. Mm. And he was really trying to move away from this. He didn't feel that this is the way art should be going forward. And often when visitors come and see Millie Smith, they say, oh, but she's got a really big head and, oh, she just looks really strange. And I do see what they're saying, that she does look a bit odd. But what I like to think about this portrait is an, it's an experiment. It's him trying to go almost backwards to her. It almost looks like a kind of an icon in a way, like it a, is. It, a medieval... It is, there's a sort of naivety. Yeah. And when he was in Rome, he was seeing the sort of what they called primitive artists, which was the artists of the 13th and 14th century, the Italian artists, who didn't use the same perspective that we have because they it's quite weren't flat. knowledgeable. It's very flat. Yeah. Um, and so if this looks slightly naive, that's because he's basing it. So in some ways, he went backwards to go forwards. And so he was expanding on these ideas. He was experimenting with paintings like Millie Smith. One thing that's really noticeable is the natural lighting. And I mentioned about that theatrical two-thirds dark to one-thirds light. This is all even natural lighting. And you really get a sense of this little girl with a really sweet face. But it's not sentimental. That's another thing, that there isn't a sentimentality to this picture. And actually, for a child portrait, to have a child, a girl child, looking directly at you is actually quite unusual. And as I say, with the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, he met Rossetti, and he taught Rossetti for a few months. But they went on to become best friends right up until Rossetti died. But why Millie Smith is so important for the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood is they were able to see what Ford Maddox Brown was doing. They were able to see the ways he was pushing the boundaries of art. And they, too, wanted to do that. So it was a meeting of sort of creative minds. They were both thinking the same thing. So although Brown was a little bit older than them, he was almost showing them the way um, and he'd had those ideas before. So Millie Smith, it's two years before the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood formed, but she's this experimental thing. And a trailblazer. Very much so. And what I like about it is the fact that you, this is exactly uh, one of those images or paintings that you really could walk past and not, uh, not appreciate. But she's, yeah, no, you definitely need to have a look at her. And she's just, just lovely. That's, that's the one that I'd take home if I could. Fantastic. Thank you. Okay, so now we've moved on to room nine. It's the Victorian narrative room. It is, yeah. No, this is a room where we have um, narrative paintings that sort of, in the 19th century, stories that told a story were particularly popular. Um, and I've, actually, I think there's probably two of the most popular works in this room. There's And When Did You Last See Your Father by Yeams. But I think that one is so famous that I just want to talk about one that is a little bit less famous, but... 
Uh, we're on the wall. It's the, it's the wall opposite the end when you last it see is, your father. Yeah. And it's the, uh, there's three uh, paintings, and it's the painting on the left that we're looking at. It is. It's a painting called Fantine, and it's by Margaret Bernadine Hall. Um, and there is a story about this. Um, back in the 1980s, um, this painting was rediscovered um, down in storage. It was absolutely filthy. The frame was really broken. Um, and they brought it out for a women artist exhibition, and it's never been off display since. It was so popular. Margaret Bernadine Hall, who is the artist, um, was the, one of the mayors of Liverpool's daughters. And actually, I found her really... And this is partly why I've added it in, because I, I think she must have been a really formidable and really interesting woman to meet. Very feisty. She was taught in England, but then went over to Paris and was actually taught over in Paris um, and was exhibiting at the Salon there, which was the major place to get your work exhibited. If you wanted to make it as an artist, you put your work into the Salon. And so she exhibited this at the Paris Salon and it got an honourable mention, which is effectively winning a prize. So she was a, a good artist. Um, but the other reason I like her is because she was a real traveller. Um, and in her late 20s she went all over the world she did a round the world trip which in the 1880s if you think about it was really for quite a, amazing for, for a, a young solo woman. woman artist yeah absolutely and particularly um, she went to places such as Egypt and she also went to Japan and I was really stunned because Japan had only been open to the west since the 1850s so she's one of the earliest women really to go but I mean this always seems to be the ones that I like have a sad reason behind them well I mean it's it's no hello photo shoot is it it's is quite a harrowing piece not, isn't no it? it's all about poor Fantine who is trying desperately to make enough money so that she can keep her child her illegitimate daughter and first of all she tries to sew all hours and then she ends up trying to sell her hair, she tries to sell her teeth and ultimately she ends up selling her body on the street but it's all in vain but it's interesting seeing it, take it from the woman's perspective and actually what I was saying about having the theatrical lighting, there's very much a spotlight on Fantine in this one, yeah. it's really dramatic um, and sort of spooky because when you stand back she does follow you from wherever you are but with this vacant stare so a little bit spooky as well. And, and the Victorians they love a bit of melodrama don't they? Oh yes, absolutely um, I think that's why it was so popular but yeah. really there's only two figures in it and there's no background I and mean, I can see why it won a prize when it was absolutely. exhibited. Here we are, we're in room eight now, the High Victorian Gallery, one of the, the largest galleries, I it guess. It is, and it's got some of the biggest paintings yeah. as well. But I have to say, what I'm going to talk to you about is it's not, not a painting. painting. It's a sculpture, um, and it's a sculpture of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who was, in his time, a bit like Roger McGough. He was one of the most famous poets. He was an American. Um, and you're probably thinking, oh, I bet the sculpture's by a man. Um, but in actual fact, it's by a woman, and it's by um, a woman called Edmonia Lewis, and she was America's first black sculptress. Yeah. So um, it is a very kind of white marble sculpture of a man who's got a big full beard. And so we're on, we're on the right-hand side of the gallery, aren't we? Just, just by the, the door out of the gallery. So when was this piece made? Um, it was sculpted in 1872 in Rome. Um, you might wonder why an American sculptress was in Rome. Um, and actually, Edmonia Lewis had a really interesting history. Um, she was born in America. Um, her mother was a Native American and her father was an African-American. Um, but they died very young, and so she was raised by her Native American relatives. But she had a brother who went off with the gold rush um, and made his money, made his fortune. And he actually sent her to college. Um, and she went to a college um, in America that was one of the few colleges that let in black pupils. 
Um, but unfortunately, while she was there, she did actually run into racism and she was accused of trying to murder two of her white contemporaries. Um, and so there was this big law case that came up and she was actually defended by the only black American lawyer that was um, actually in the county and they won, which was really remarkable. Um, but pretty much that, that ended her career at college. She wasn't allowed to graduate. So she went up to Boston, and this is before the Civil War, so this is before the end of slavery. So in Boston, she decided to leave for Rome um, because she wanted to sculpt in marble. Now, the reason that she chose to sculpt Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, which you might think is this very strange, random choice, but actually um, Longfellow produced an awful lot of poems about Native Americans. And at a point when actually there were very few people representing them, he was very sympathetic to them. And in particular, he wrote poems about the area of America that her... Uh, relatives and ancestors came from. So she had this close sort of link and she... Did you do the Song of Hiawatha? Yes, that's right, it. Okay. And so a lot of her early sculptures are actually taken from that poem. Nice. And it's, she sculpted the characters. But just in, in one year when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was introduced to Victoria, this is how famous he was, he came to Rome for a while and she met him. She, to begin with, um, she knew that he was staying in Rome and her studio was very close to his hotel. So she was following him round, apparently with a sketchbook, popping up and sketching him. What she was trying to do was sketch him so well that she could come up with a plaster cast model that he would then see and then uh, agree, agree to, to sit. sit okay, her. yeah. Fantastic. Um, and they produced, she produced a marble version, which they have at Harvard. That was the first patron who bought this marble. And then, because lots of tourists were coming to Rome, British tourists would come to Rome and wanted to buy sculpture, wanted to buy art whilst they were there, she had quite a lot of patrons. And one of those patrons was Sandbach, who was a merchant from Liverpool. Um, and he actually commissioned to have this portrait, uh, this portrait sculpture yeah. of Wadsworth in from her and commissioned it to have it in his home um, and so we actually got it directly from Sandbach's home when they were selling them. Sadly um, the style changed, the, the fashion for that style moved on um, and I don't think she was able to move with the time so I think she actually died in poverty so there is a, quite a sad tale that goes with it. It was ever thus. It was. <laughs> okay so we're in, uh, you can tell you're in the context of modern art because there's no flock wallpaper on the walls it's, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot lighter it's gray gray walls yeah um, it's room 13 are we in yes room 13 and just in the background you can hear one of our new purchases which is a, a marcus Coates video so if you hear some uh, yelping dog noises that's part of the video um, so that's come awesome. and see that as okay. well <laughs> and so we're if you're coming from the room that uh, the hockney piece is in it's it's on the left hand side and it's the painting against the wall and it's uh, by Patrick Caulfield. It is, yeah, it's um, Patrick Caulfield's still life autumn fashion. It's actually a view of a kitchen, the interior of a kitchen, um, and the kitchen worktop looking out of the window, and there's this wonderful stream of light just flooding in through the kitchen. Amazing kind of 1960s, 70s wallpaper on one side. There's a basket of leeks on the right and um, a plate of oysters on the left. And it looks almost as if everything's been done incredibly simply. There's sort of thick black outlines around all the objects. It's very deceptive. It looks so simple, but actually the 
creation of the composition is really very complicated. It looks like he's kind of playing with the difference between sort of reality and representation. Very much so. And uh, two of the oysters, there's five oysters on the plate, and two of them are painted in an extremely realistic style, almost photographically mm. realistic, whereas the other ones um, are just various shades of blue with big black outline. And it's that kind of joker. Well, I'm reducing everything down to the minimal lines. Um, but I can also. But I can actually really do paint. It. Yeah. But it's also a reference to the Dutch 17th century still life painters. So it's saying, I can play their game, I can be as skillful as them, but we've moved on. This modern art has taken things in a different direction. And there's uh, also a sort of red vase in the background. And again, that's part of this complex way he's set up the composition. Um, and he's referencing the tradition of using red in, a, in the centre of painting to draw the eye back. That's a trick that painters have been using since the Renaissance. So he really knows his history of and, art. And, he's, and if you know that, he's telling you he knows that. He knows that but he's exactly. not enthralled to it. No. Um, and so that's just really interesting that he is referencing these things in the past, but he's kind of beating them and, and pushing them. And that, that wallpaper, which is on the, the left-hand side, is also a bit of a reference to um, Bridget Riley and the pop artists. The, yeah, pop art, so yeah. not only is he sort of having a bit of fun of the the art historical artist, but also his own contemporaries. Now we're in room 15, which is at least currently the home of the Ben Johnson Liverpool cityscape. And we're kind of on the far wall on the right-hand side. And we've got a little bit of, well, rusted, corrugated iron. Well, not exactly rusted, but it's definitely corrugated iron. It's a sculpture called Geisha by Kate Blacker. Um, and she created it in 1981. And it's no surprise to find out that because of my love of Japan that I've chosen this sculpture called Geisha. But what I really like about it is it's a really witty piece. Kate Blacker, at the time she made it in the 80s, was very interested in found objects. And apparently she went to, I think it was a tip, and found this piece of corrugated iron that had been run over by a bulldozer and crumpled. And what she was doing with her found objects was letting the objects sort of suggest a subject for her. And because it was corrugated, she thought about the idea of a geisha with a, corruga- a fan, a, fan, a yeah. folding fan. So that really suggested the subject to her. And I just love that it's so witty, that it's this found object that you just wouldn't really expect to see. She's painted the um, corrugated iron with the geisha is wearing a, a lovely red underrobe and then a blue kimono on top. But it so, looks like it's kind of heavy duty. Yeah, I think it, I think de- it might decorators. be industrial. And yeah. In actual fact, there's a bag of cement um, weighting the whole sculpture down and that was very deliberate to have this bag of cement to remind us that it's actually a found object and it's kind of industrial past. So I just love it because it's really witty and obviously Kate Backer was born in 1955, uh, still very much a contemporary artist. So I know that she's moved on but I just love this piece in the 80s and I think that idea of the 80s and witticism and I I can just remember just when I was a little girl that kind of bold bright colours and kind of bold ideas it all reminds me of that and and I suppose in a way it predates the recycled chic and the the, you know as we have now the kind of retro vintage fashions and uh, upcycling I think they call it it does and this is definitely an upcycled piece excellent Now this is this is actually a, a new experience for me. We've we've come into the uh, the big art for little artists room, which is the first room on the left on the ground floor. And it's kind of 
if you don't mind me saying, it's a little wacky warehouse, isn't it? Until you it's a bit, and um, you can probably hear the children, yeah. <laughs> and the, uh, the audio tapes the children going on. But actually, it's really nice to come into this space. And so the next picture that I've chosen, because it's in big art, lots of big people don't necessarily go in here, and so it's quite a nice surprise. It's definitely one of our hidden ones. OK, so we've come to the far end of the room. We've, we've crawled underneath a, a sort of multicoloured... Um, Fortress, and we're looking at a, a mixed media piece uh, at the end of the room. So, don't talk about this one. Yeah, it's um, a collage by George Jardine. It's um, a big face with these enormous blue eyes, and it's made up of shells and feathers with painted background with kind of weird fish and corals behind. Um, and George Jardine was actually known as Liverpool's surrealist, um, and he only passed away quite recently in 2002. He had a very long career and taught at Liverpool School of Art, but he started off at Wallasey School of Art, that's where he trained, with another artist called Albert Richards, and both of them were really interested in surrealist art, and they both saw um, an exhibition of surrealist art in the 1930s over at the Walker, and ever since then, really, George Jardine followed that kind of surrealist style. Um, he lived in Wallasey, and he had apparently a very interesting garden that was sort of surrealist and was the inspiration behind quite a lot of his paintings several of which we've got in the gallery and so I think this, this sort of all these shells might actually well have been picked up on the beaches on either side of the Mersey so there's this really kind of strong Liverpool link but because it's in big art not very often do big people come and see it absolutely but no it's a fantastic picture um, and we've got a new gallery opening the British Art 1880 to 1950 and we're going to put some more of his work up in there um, it's a wonderful painting with arms growing out of the soil and a bee buzzing round. I mean, they're just such strange and wacky and just a bit of fun, really. Hope you've enjoyed our first podcast. Thanks to the Walker Art Gallery and to Laura McCulloch. Thanks to you for listening. I'm Dave Lloyd and I hope you'll keep reading sevenstreets.com.